So if you are going to be invested in that space, yes, it's risky, but like, hey, at least you won't ever have the doubt that you couldn't do it for yourself. You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow your side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikayla Matthews-Okome. So let's get started. Hey, hey guys, welcome, welcome back to the show. It is Nikayla here. And in today's episode, we are going to dive in with another side hustle pro turned full-time entrepreneur, Petrushka Bazin Larson, the co-founder of Sugar Hill Creamery in Harlem, New York. Prior to opening Sugar Hill Creamery with her husband, Petrushka worked as vice president for programs and education at the Brooklyn Children's Museum and program director at the Laundromat Project, a nonprofit organization committed to building resilient neighborhoods using art, art making, and culture as platforms for meaningful exchanges between New York residents. In her spare time, Petrushka guest curates exhibitions at Sugar Hill Children's Museum of Art and Storytelling. She's also an adjunct lecturer in art education at the City College of New York and serves the Harlem-based nonprofit Harlem for Kids as a board member. Petrushka is also the proud mom to three children ages seven and under and has been a Harlem resident for 15 years. In this episode, Petrushka shares how she got the idea for an ice cream shop and how they brought it to fruition, the strategic decisions they made to acquire capital to open and build out the shop, and the strategic marketing moves that has kept foot traffic going during all seasons for their ice cream business. She also shares so much more, so let's get right into it. Now, I have never interviewed someone who owns an Ice Creamery. (laughs) So tell us more about your business, Sugar Hill Creamery. Yeah. So my husband, Nick, and I opened Sugar Hill Creamery at the end of July in 2017. We are Harlem's only family-owned small batch ice cream shop, um, which basically means that we make our own ice cream and it is just us who own and operate it. We have in Harlem, you know, Baskin and Robbins, we have ice cream truck, we have the Coco Helado cart, which we patronize and frequent all of them. I mean, probably Baskin and Robbins, we don't do that anymore just because we have our own ice cream. But prior to opening, we did. But what we did not have was a place for people to sit down and enjoy ice cream Mm. together. Ice cream is probably America's one of their favorite, one of our favorite desserts. um, And one that has so many memories connected to it. And so it felt odd that we didn't have a place where people could make those memories over Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. dessert that many people eat, you know? And so the way that we came about was I was working at Brooklyn Children's Museum at the time as the vice president of programs and education. And my husband had just recently taken on a general manager position at Telepan, which was um, a restaurant run by Bill Telepan um, on the Upper West Side and had been around for a very long time. Um, And then he... He called, so Nick called me at work and he said, the restaurant is closing. And he had just recently been hired, like not too long before this call. So at the time we were pregnant with our second child and uh, it was just shocking news and <laughs> not the news that you want to get when you're expecting a second baby. Yes. So um, it was a, obviously it was a blessing in disguise because A, it um, allowed him to kind of have a paternity leave. The restaurant industry is not one that 
often creates that space to be with your family when um, you have delivered a baby. And so when we had our first child, that he was not able to be around as much. Um, and so as a result of this, we were able to spend a lot more time together and spend time raising this little infant along with, at the time, our three and a half year old. Um, and it was during um, my maternity leave and his sort of forced paternity leave that we went to D.C., which is where I was raised um, between the ages of five and 17. And I was hanging out or we were hanging out actually with some of my friends from high school. And we were at Union Market, which was not there when I was younger. But my friends took us because they were like, oh, this is a new thing. And after we had lunch, we had ice cream. And it was a pop-up by an ice cream shop in Philadelphia. And the ice cream was delicious. And it, it just kind of hit us at that moment that we didn't have this opportunity to go and get some food with some friends and then go get a cone and walk, walk. You know, it was very, or sit. It, it just, it was so simple. It was so very simple. But it was that moment that we were hanging out and full from a delicious lunch. That that triggered. That's what triggered it. And so um, after we finished our cones, we were walking to the car because my mom lives in Maryland now. And we were walking to the car and it just kind of I said, wait, what if this is what we do? Like now that you're not working for someone else. And Nick had always wanted to open a food um business with a, like a brick and mortar establishment. Um, he went to culinary school very early on in our relationship. And sort of during that time, he's like, yeah, I want to open a restaurant. And obviously restaurants are very risky. Uh, right. Never done it before. So labor and cash intensive. Oh yeah. You know, so it didn't didn't talk about that. Yeah. Start like at that moment where he had the initial idea of opening a restaurant. Cause also they're very expensive and we just didn't have like a cadre of people that were going to back us, you know, we're like, mm-hmm, I'm gonna mm-hmm. money, you know? Um, so when we had this ice cream and we're walking to the car, it's like, Oh, interesting. Ice cream does not cost as much as opening a full menu restaurant. It just doesn't. So as you had this idea, you were working full time and I know you're probably thinking and brainstorming, okay, my husband eventually has to go back to work. So what can we do? But were you ready to jump into it at that moment? Or was it one of those, one of those passing ideas that we all have like, hmm, could this work? No, I think I've been ready to jump into it since I was in third grade. (laughs) 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 I'm not, I'm somebody that, um, I think I'm a little intense in my commitments and that people are like, wait, why are you doing so many things like all the time? Like, I don't know. I just like to do these things. And I don't I don't think I have that um, that need for full safety, if that makes sense. Like I enjoy Mm -hmm. risk taking a little bit, Um, I mean, within reason and with strategy. But uh, I was completely open to this. probably a couple of years before it presented itself. So my, my dad is Haitian. My mom is not, um, but hey, like Haitian culture has been a part of my upbringing for my whole life, obviously, even though my mom was the one that really raised me. Um, and I think two years prior to this, I was like, Nick, let's open a peak Lee's business because, um, peak Lee's is like, I don't know, Haitian's version of maybe kimchi or something. You know, it's like okay. cabbage and 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 carrots. It's spicy. It's a pickled. It's a, it's a condiment in every Haitian person's refrigerator, and everybody makes their own, right? And I was like, I'm seeing kimchi on the on the on the uh, shelves at the grocer, and where's the piquelis? You know, like this needs to happen. And so Nick very, very much enjoys piquelis, and so it's like, why don't we create? a Pickley's business and like, we'll make Pickley's. And we started 
testing out variations and, um, you know, just creating our own recipes. And then ultimately he's like, I just, I love peaklees, but I don't think I can spend all of my days making peaklees. But I love that you jumped all in and and started making it and think it through bottling it and all of that. Yes. We were like, how do we, okay, we just need to get like rent some space in the commissary kitchen. Like we'll do this at night, like while we all work full time. Um, So I was definitely ready for some business. And I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I mean, since I would say third grade and when I was making bookmarks and selling them and making shirts and selling them to my teachers and their kids and, you know, always just trying to think of something to make and, and sell. There's something about it that is very compelling to me. Um, I mean, theoretically, both of my parents are their own entrepreneurs, even though they both specifically have, um, practices that are, not just being in business, but like being business in in communications or being business in the medical industry. Got it. So what happened that day in the car as you have this idea and you talk to Nick about it? And what what year was that again? So that was, we opened in 2017. So this happened in May, 2016. Okay. So what happened next? So, you know, we spent the next 20 minutes driving back to my mom's house, kind of playing this out. Like, okay, if we opened, where would we open? Uh, would we be seasonal? You know, would we just be open from May to September or would we be year round? And we j- we started, I don't think we did any um, financial projections at the time, but we probably did some back of envelope projections. Like, okay, we could probably serve this many people at this price point for this number of days. So we would probably make this amount during this period. Would that be enough to sustain rent plus payroll, plus insurance, plus, you know, cost of goods. Um, and by the time the end of the weekend came, Nick was over it. He was like, <laughs> this is too seasonal. This is not going to work. Like, yeah. this will be cute for, you know, the the hot months. But what about the cold months, right? Um, and I still wasn't convinced. I was like, no, I think it can work. I feel that maybe I'm the optimist. We kind of change roles in terms of who's being pragmatic about things. But in this case, I was clearly not the pragmatist. I was like, glass is half full. We can do this we can make it work. And so the idea kind of died at the end of the weekend when he wasn't fully bought in because he just didn't see how it could be sustainable. Like most people, because once we opened, many people said, oh my God, I'm so glad that you opened. I've had this idea for so many years. Fast forward probably three months later when he was um, thinking about working for another restaurant in a GM capacity, he kind of really started to think about the quality of his life and what it would be and that he would be, you know, working 60 plus hours a week with a obviously like a capped salary and not spending a lot of time with his family. And it, I think it all sort of crystallized in that moment. It's like, wait, if I'm going to be working this hard, um, I might as well do it for myself because, you know, the the hospitality industry is one that does require you to do a lot of sweat, <laughs> like, you know, have a lot of sweat, work a ton. Um, so if you are going to be invested in that space, yes, it's risky, but like, hey, at least you won't ever have the doubt that you couldn't do it for yourself. So it- how do you get into it? You know, it just seems so daunting to me. And I'm sure I feel like how Nick probably felt in that moment. Like it is a seasonal business. Um, Harlem is expensive. <laughs> um, the price points are kind of more fixed. You know, it's not like you can have various dishes on the menu. So let's talk through what happened in order for you to find a space and well, decide to really do it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. find a space and what it required financially. 
So yeah. that was a lot. So let's break it down. So when did yeah. you actually commit? When did you actually convince Nick and and you guys were both on the same accord to do this? Yeah, I think, well, he finally, he convinced himself after I had just kind of kept peppering suggestions like, well, you're going to be working a lot. So, you know, like, might as well try, right? Might as well try because, you know, at the end of the day, people often have the regret of not trying. Yes. It's better to have tried and failed than not try at all, right? That old adage. So, so he finally was game by the fall of 2016. So May 2016 was when the initial idea. And by, I think, September, he was like, all right, you know what? Let's just try. Let's just see. So we ended up getting a loan from the Upper Manhattan Empowerment Zone, um, which is technically a lender of last resort. They are there to help small business owners generally when everything is sort of fully explored. You know, like, <laughs> I could help, you know, to like get me out of this hot water. Okay. Um, but we actually- uh, How big was that loan? Do they have a cap on- they they have different um they have two different tiers and we went into the like the lower tier because we didn't have any previous business management experience or entrepreneurial sort of endeavor experience uh, so we ended up getting a loan from them for a hundred and three thousand dollars um and then we put in some of our own money as well and and so and and th- I have lots of thoughts about that later but um needless to say they were the lender a first resort for us because they were a lender that was that is invested in um businesses in our community. And so, and we have, I've lived in Harlem 20 years. Nick has lived in Harlem and in the Heights and Washington Heights um, for 17 years. I've worked here in many capacities. And so I just figured, let's just see if they'll lend to us because a a traditional bank probably would not have lent to us um, at that stage um, because we didn't have a track record of running our own operation. So it took a while um, for them to kind of like be convinced that we would not squander their money or blow it. Um, we are ahead, we are paying it back. We're ahead of schedule. Um, it was a five-year term. Um, we had five and a half. It's a five and a half percent loan, five years. Um, so we are more than halfway done and ahead of schedule. That said, um, they were a great option because of also that interest rate. Because um, sometimes if you go to like in New York, we have the NYC Business Solutions Office, which is fantastic. I encourage anybody who's in New York looking for business guidance and advice to seek out their business solutions office. Um, they helped us because we're in the middle of expanding to a second location at the moment. Um, and they uh, put us in touch when we were looking for financing for the second location with some other lenders that are not traditional bank lenders, but partner with banks. And the interest rate is just like more than I'm willing to pay. It's like, I am not interested in 9% at this moment. I'm so sorry. So UMAS, which is the um, acronym for Upper Manhattan Empowerment Zone, um, was a great pro. They have a great product because it was at five and a half percent. That's a very great tip. And I thank you for sharing that. So, so now you get this loan. And, and, and it was not like, it was not an overnight <laughs> situation. Um, but you know, we worked really hard to get the loan. And then, um, in the process, we were rolling big dice here because we were act- actively like requesting money for this business. Um, and also looking for the place where it would exist. Did and- you get the loan before the property? <laughs> just nope. So that's what I said. Like we were taking some very big risks here uh-huh. because, um, we had got, we found the property. Before okay. we got the loan. And right? you put down money. 
who put down money. Okay. And and the the great thing about the property is that it's below market rate. And so for all my New York listeners, like what I, is market rate? <laughs> so when Nick was looking at places on we live in Mount Morris Park, right? And the location is our our first location is in Mount Morris Park. Okay. Part of Manhattan of, of Harlem. And so um the rent on on Lenox Avenue, where the location or our store is located, is seven thousand dollars a month for um, I think maybe like thirteen four hundred square fourteen hundred square feet, which was just not wow. Like, we did not have that. The projections did not support a rent roll of that high. Okay, so below market rate is obviously way below that. Um, (laughs) The space that we have is also not humongous. Like our store is about 500 square feet. So we were basically like, okay, we can afford less than seven thousand dollars. And but for less space. So which is to say we have to figure out how to make this ice cream in a small, small small space. Uh, (laughs) And were you buying a a former restaurant? Because obviously you need kitchen, you need a kitchen, you need plumbing. The whole thing. You had to build out the whole thing. Wow. One day, so Nick was going around with brokers to look at spaces. This is while I'm traveling to Crown Heights every day. So from Harlem, which is an hour and 15 minute ride each way. So I'm on the train. My commute is two and a half hours, which was a blessing and a curse because obviously it's very draining, but at the same time I was able to get a lot of reading and l- podcast listening in, yours included. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> um, and so um, I was able to do a lot of learning and writing that supported our business to date. So while he, while I'm going to work, he's like working with a broker to kind of find a commercial space that makes sense for our budget. And one day we, I think maybe it was on the weekend or on a weekday. I can't remember, but we walked by a storefront that's just around the corner from our house that the gates were shuttered. And we knew that the storefront had been a nail salon and I had gone, I had been a the client there gave a fantastic manicure that lasted a full week and it was not gels. It was kind of magical. And it was a business that a, a single mom who just also needed that work-life balance to be able to be present for her kids, but also obviously needed to make money um, to support them had opened. And she, I think she had a five-year lease on it. And so the lease had come to an end. And you know, when you're present in your neighborhood, you know the cadence of your neighborhood. You know when the gate is open and when it's closed. You know when people are, you know, when the street, the sidewalk is busy, when it's not. Right. And so when we walked by and we saw that the gate was closed and it was the middle of the day, we're like, that's very strange. Like that does not normally happen. That must mean that this lease has expired. And so we immediately called the broker and we said, can you look into this property? Like, is it available? The broker said the property is available. It has not even hit the market. It's going to hit the market on Monday. And if you can get all of your paperwork in by Friday, so this was probably at the beginning of the week, maybe, um, it could be yours if you're approved. And so we were like scrambling, you know, to get, get all of our paperwork together to submit the application before it hit the market. And so we got it in. I think one of us like dropped it off at the office on a Friday and we ended up getting approved. And so we got the space. And so um, I urge anybody who is looking for housing, who is looking for affordable space to um, look for different um, subsidized programs and entities in New York. They do exist where rent is being offered at a lower rate than market. Mm. And how long did it take you to go from finding that location to actually opening? 10 months. It was 10 months. Wow. Um, it was very quick. Um, 
it's well that's considered quick <laughs> quick for for us as like first time as first time entrepreneurs and also because we are now in the process of opening a second location and we it took us 10 months to get a contra- countersigned lease which was also completely ridiculous. I mean, even our lawyer, our broker were like, I don't even know if this is a good deal. <laughs> you might want to back out because this doesn't make any sense why it's taking this long. But from incept- from us finding the location to being opened to just being able to get a lease that everybody's on the same page about, like 10 months feels like very quick to me. And this second deal has been a very long process. Like we've been working on the second location for over a year anyway. But yeah, 10 months is quick though. Obviously there are many restaurants and and food businesses that open in much less time. But for us, first time, you know, owners with two kids and working, Nick was also like bartending, you know, in the middle of this also while I was working at the museum. Um, it felt very quick. And how are you, um, sustaining the business the, the financial needs of the business during this time. So you, you mentioned that you were both working. Was it also a matter of extreme sacrifice? Like no longer were you putting things into savings. It was all going into the business, all the extra cash into the business. No, actually, so we maintained our um, savings rate while I, while we were both working. Um, and it was during the, but it was during this time that I started to really take stock of how we were spending mm. um, and, and got way more conservative um, and really started tightening the belt. So we were able to, with the, um, financing from UMass and our own money, like the savings, um, we were able to finance the business. And then, but we had to make sure that obviously that we had a savings cushion at home, right? right? Because at the time I wasn't planning on, I mean, I dreamed of it, but I wasn't planning on working full-time for the business. I was like, I will work um, full-time elsewhere and I will, you know, make sure that we have benefits um, covered and, you know, a steady paycheck while Nick, you know, focuses his primary attention on the shop and we can, you know, pull down a salary to kind of supplement my salary, but not really, you know, and I think it's important that business owners do take a salary from their business so that you are building a sustainable structure. I just think it's very important. But needless to say, the salary that he was drawing down was not going to be a fully livable one for New York. Um, but that was the intention. I would work outside and and support the business like in a in the cloud sort of way and in my evening okay. on my train rides, you know, whenever I had time on the weekends. And then he would be on site, you know, at the shop, um, with our other employees actually like scooping, making ice cream, et cetera. How many employees did you allow for in your projections? Um, let's see, that is, it's now, let's see, I think probably like five, but, um, during the summer we have like eight, you know, Mm. and we've done this thing where we wanted from the beginning to be a place where young people could learn about working in the hospitality industry. So it'd be kind of like a training space in the absence of us having like a fully executed youth development sort of arm to this. We have basically partnered with nonprofits. So they are paying them, you know, it is young people who are either in GED programs or looking to just get work experience. Maybe they're SYEP, which is summer youth employment program. Um, and they're looking to get their feet wet in the workforce and there are nonprofits that are always like looking for work sites. And so we partner with two to three during any given year. Um, and they send us like a group of young people anywhere from one to three from, from their site that work with us. So we're not paying them. The organization is paying them. And then we use it as an opportunity to see if this is all going to work out. Are you reliable? Are you trustworthy? Do, are, do you, you know, have a good sense of like customer service? Are you able to engage the public? Are you, um, 
Do you have a teachable spirit? If a person presents all of those character traits, then we do hire them. So we are a site that is actually able to bring on um, employees as a result of their successful participation in the internship sort of triage. So we, I love that. that. Yeah, it's been it's able to it has been able to meet our needs on a mul- on multiple levels, like doing the youth development work that we are interested in and passionate about, um, you know, on some level kind of offsetting the sort of payroll expense, but also doing like a very extended interview to say like, no, the way that you show up and we don't say you could potentially get a job because we want people to show up the way that they are. Right. And then we can see, like, are you a dependable and reliable person? And everybody that's on staff right now is actually somebody who had who was matriculated through one of those programs, which is I feel very like I'm very happy about that, as is my husband. That is a great tip. And now you mentioned that your original plan was for Nick to hold down the fort full time while you continue to have your full time job. When did that change? So. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) That changed in 2018, in January, 2018. So when we opened the shop, I was pregnant with our third child and which was, I mean, it was a surprise. I love that you guys keep living life, by the way. You're very inspiring to me. (laughs) You're like, yes, yes, this is financially intimidating, but we're going to go ahead and keep growing our family. (laughs) So January 2018 is when we had our third and last child. Okay? We have made it so. We are not having any more children. The living is over now. I mean, we're just living for them. So, um... That said, I had transitioned from my position at the museum into um, an executive director position at a nonprofit in our neighborhood because I did I did want to be more present in my neighborhood. Like I wanted to be able to walk slowly and not in a rushed capacity to the train to get on the train to make sure I got to work on time. Like I wanted to be able to say hello to my neighbors as I'm walking by, have a quick conversation and not completely throw off my commute. Um, I've always thought about the co- the concept of walking to work as a, a, as a luxury and a privilege, but one that I definitely wanted in New York um, because many people spend a good portion of their day commuting. And I just did not want that. And I also, because I do love my neighborhood um, and the people in it, like just, I just wanted to be more at ease. And I remember in 2017, um, my word for the year was local. And I just wanted to align my life with everything local, like everything. Um, And so I, I got an opportunity. Headhunter called me about this position um, to run an organization, which was like, an amazing opportunity. And I felt like a reach for me in terms of the sort of the next level of my career and mm-hmm. the nonprofit art space. And so, I mean, this was not an arts organization, but it was in the space of youth development, which I had a ton of experience in as well. Um, so I was like, okay, like I will be considered for this position. I'll do the interviews. And it's like walking distance from my house and it's impacting the lives of young people in my neighborhood. Like as far as the values go, like everything checked off, the salary was e- even better than it was at the museum. So it's like, everything is looking up here, you know, like I can't see why this is not a great opportunity. And what I did not do was I think have more conversations about what coming into an executive director position role looked like coming following rather a founder. And so if you Mm -hmm. are familiar with nonprofits and nonprofit management, or just like even actually just running a business, like coming, following a founder is a very hard thing. And it requires a lot of support from a board um, and, you know, other stakeholders that have some say in power to support both people as this transition happens. And so 
in my naivete, I just really did not do enough due diligence around asking what that support looked like. And at the end of the day, it was just a very stressful situation where I had vision for where I wanted to see the organization grow, go and grow. Um, and it just wasn't in alignment with where the founder was. And so mm-hmm. it's just like, you know what? Um, I am literally about to have a third baby. And we do have this business that got a ton of press, like when we opened that people were very excited about. And there was a line out of the door for four hours on the first day. Um, I just feel like I need to focus on my home and focus on this business that has a lot of potential and that I know I have skills to contribute towards. And so I'm going to sever my ties here and let everybody live the lives that they were living before. And I will go with my life <laughs> So that is how I ended up transitioning full time into working for the company. And, you know, there was some ambivalence, I think, from Nick's side, because when you work, when you work with your partner and you also are partnering with them to raise a family and, you know, maintain a home, it can be a lot, right? It can just be a lot. And a lot of people are like, I don't know how you all work together and live together and raise all these children together. I just don't get it. Um, (laughs) And I actually say that as a result of us working together these last two years, it has brought us so much closer together. We, um, it's not to say that we do not have disagreements. We definitely do. And sometimes those voices can get a little escalated when the children are asleep. But like we have just, I don't know, we, it has brought us closer together in that we are able to communicate more effectively about maybe when we're entering a space where you know one of us could be triggered or just communicating what our ideas are for the future. It has just, it has been a wonderful bonding opportunity um, for us that I would, I have no regrets about and would not change for the world. And now that you guys are both, you know, in this, um, how, how did things change? You know, what dynamic shifted in terms of going from having a guaranteed salary to really having to depend more on the business? Yeah. So, I mean, again, you know, we had always um, budgeted for there to be a, a, draw, a salary drawdown mm-hmm. for Nick. Right. And so basically now we draw down that salary for and we split it. So it, it's not like we have increased the salary. Mm-hmm. So what that required was a lot of strategy. Um, you know, we are savers. Um, I'd like to, I, I always had dreams of us living at 50% of our take-home salary. We had, we never achieved that. But I think now that I have gotten like super zeroed in on finances, personal finances, we definitely can do that. And I'm ready to do that. I'm like very excited to do that. But we always, you know, pay ourselves first and make sure to have, you know, a foundation, a savings that we could call on to support that we get paid on a weekly basis. So to support that weekly pay schedule, I had a conversation with a friend and colleague who had a similar sort of hands up in the air moment where like, I don't need this from you all. I'm quitting, you know? Um, and she had kids to support, but she did it. Um, she, she said that she did it kind of sporadically and maybe not with the same strategy. And so that put her in a, in a sort of tight place where she was like, "Uh Oh, you know, Mm -hmm. like I don't have that check anymore. And so what I say to anybody who is having the itch to make that, um, sort of transition, um, and to start to sort of double down on what your hands can create to, to have like a runway, you know, to really be intentional about, what your cost of living is, it is so very important to know your numbers in business. And it is even more important to know it in your personal life. Like 
what does it actually cost you to live and what are your actual needs versus your wants? And I have gotten so very clear, Nikayla, about mm-hmm. the last two years that is very empowering to me to know that I can support our family or we can support our family, right? Like with a specific number and everything else is extra, right? And so when you have the everything else, like what are you doing with that everything else? Is it going into uh, a compound, like interest bearing account? You know, is it a brokerage fund? Is it, you know, are you maxing out on your retirement? Do you have the, you know, X, you know, X number of months or years um, and liquid assets like available in case you, you need to call on it? Um, These are the things that, I'm very clear about. And as a result of us now both working in this business, we have had to be like, it has forced us to be, to know our numbers and to be very modest, um, but surprisingly very happily modest about it. The last two years has been this experiment in happiness and contentment and enoughness that Mm. has been so very um, uplifting and inspiring and encouraging to me to know that it's like, it's not stuff that makes us happy. It's not. It's relationships. It's time. It's really not. Mm -hmm. The ability to spend time with the people that you love, whoever those people are. For me, it's it's my, obviously it's my immediate family, but it's also all the people that are in my neighborhood that are my friends that, you know, that I come to know as a result of living on the same block or, you know, going to the, sending our kids to the same school or whatever. Right. And, I talked about this with my best friend all the time. Like, like I just, I, this is the happiest I have ever been in my whole working life. And it is, that is amazing. I have ever made in my whole life. So it is to say, wait, say that again, the least amount of money I've made in my whole life, but it's the happiest Mm -hmm. I've been, which has been a very remarkable sort of paradigm shift because my whole life and many people's whole lives are to, um, sort of ascend in, um, in a sort of visibility in their careers and positions as well as their salary. And I was making six figures, but I was working, I was stressed. Like I was not spending time with my, my kids, you know, I, I, when they did get me, I was very short fused. I was short fused with my husband. So then I wasn't modeling like a healthy relationship for them, you know, and that is not living like at all. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I was able to like get to that six figures mark, but at what cost? at the cost of my relationships and the quality of them? No, no, thank you. Right. And I love that you bring that up too, because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently too. I think, you know, we just experienced having our baby shower and being surrounded by our friends and family um, during a time when we're about to bring life into this world. And, you know, of course, um, you know, you're always thinking about, well, you know, how will I support this baby for the rest of their life? And, you know, like finances take on a new, mm-hmm. a new level of priority. And then, you know, you look around at all this love and how happy you feel in this moment, like that these are the times when we feel the happy it really um, makes you reevaluate your thinking about money. Yes, it's still important. And, you know, we still want to make as much as possible so we can be comfortable and set baby up. But our relationship with it and understanding what do we really need um, versus just before just having this mentality of, of, oh, we need to make as much as possible. We need to make this, this, this um, is shifting. And You know, I'm still fleshing out these thoughts, but it's interesting that you touch on that because being an entrepreneur definitely makes you continue to reevaluate your relationship with money over and over again. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I just feel I feel so, so strongly and so passionately about 
personal finance, like, and, and knowing what your numbers are, because mm-hmm. as an entrepreneur depends on like, what is the market? What, you know, you, you can sometimes be subject to things that are out of your control. Right. Um, and you will feel them before somebody who's just collecting on a biweekly basis or a weekly basis, a paycheck from an employer. Right. So you have to be in a space of resilience and um, sort of financial soundness to be able to weather the storms. And I would say in our first year, we only two times, I think it was with our rent, like where we had to come out of our personal pocket to pay the storefront rent. And after that, that's been it. Like that is it everything has been uh, paid for by the business, right? Mm. But it's because we kind of had that mentality in both our personal and, and business life. We collect the salary that we collect because we know that it's all that the business really can support at this juncture. It's not to say that it's not successful. We turned a profit last year, which was great. And, you know, it's now we're just heading into our third year. So that feels very good um, that we were able to achieve that. But at the same time, when people when people think, oh, I'm going to have a business... I think sometimes I think, or, oh, that business is doing well. Oh, well, you're just able to spend and, you know, you're living a very lavish and luxurious life. And actually it's like the opposite. <laughs> like if you're not necessarily, if you're not like venture capital backed or, you know, there are people that are maybe putting money in and you're, you have already set your salary at a particular, maybe a six figure number or whatever. Right. Like mm-hmm. it has required sacrifice for us to have a successful business, but it has also in the same sacrifice yielded a very, I think, I feel anyway, like personally successful life because we're able to be present with each other. We're able to uh, be present with our kids and we're able to live, you know, the life that every, all of our needs are being met for the most part. Sure. Like I'm not looking for, I don't necessarily want to make this much or this little like for the rest of my life, but I'm willing to make the sacrifice right now to set the foundation so that we can grow and that we can increase our take home so that I can save it for you know, when we decide to not work anymore, even though I doubt that that will ever happen because we do enjoy work Um, and, you know, to save for our children's future. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like it's such a, it's such a, it's such a weird space, I think, because people are like, what do you mean? This is the least you've made. I'm like, well, it's the least I made, you know, because I am the employer and I'm also the employee. And Mm -hmm. I also want to see this business grow and be successful. And so I'm not willing to draw down a six figure salary for the sake of saying I, I'm a business owner and I make six figures. Hey guys, it's Nikayla here with a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. The online learning community is offering Side Hustle Pro listeners two months of free premium membership. Explore new skills, deepen existing passions, and get lost in creativity with classes from Skillshare. My number one side hustle advice is to be a lifelong learner. That means continue learning new ways to grow your business each and every week. And for me, that comes through Skillshare. There's so many awesome classes on Skillshare on topics like email marketing, Instagram hacks, setting up your own website, copywriting, and more. What I like to focus on are classes to fine tune my current priority skills. So most of the classes are under 60 minutes with short lessons to fit any schedule. And since I tend to listen to classes on 2x speed, I can get through up to two in a day. 
I recently took a Skillshare class called Copywriting Tips from Beginner to Advanced and found it so valuable because I'm in a zone right now where I am laser focused on the copywriting in my Facebook and Instagram ads, which I know you guys might be seeing. Whatever your business need is though, you can find a class for it on Skillshare. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Side Hustle Pro, where you'll get two free months of premium membership. Again, that's two free months of premium membership at Skillshare.com slash Side Hustle Pro. Let's talk about the business actually opening. You know, I feel like we've spent a lot of time, which is awesome. I love talking about the financials behind it and really sharing those resources like you have done. But I also am curious what happens when you open up an ice cream shop, you pop up with an ice cream shop in Harlem. (laughs) Um, You know, how did you attract customers from day one? We had a Kickstarter campaign um, that we launched in February of 2017. Mm. And we ran it for, I think, four to five weeks. Okay. And our goal was to raise $10,000 to just like be able to pay for like the last minute odds and ends and, you know, any sort of permits or whatever. Um, And what it ended up doing was becoming this very locally viral thing (laughs) that um, was a wonderful call to action for press. So the way that we sort of framed our story, which is true, is like there hasn't really been like a family owned place like this since 1983. There was a place called Tomford's. It wasn't just ice cream. It was a soda fountain. And they had, you know, hamburgers and savory foods. But it was a place that many people who have lived in Harlem for at least three decades um, at the time, you know, remembered. Uh, And it was on St. Nicholas and 125th. And people just had very fond memories. And it was basically that sort of institution, you know, of, of going there after church or going there on a date that we were trying to strike with our business. So that is the, that is how we presented. This is the first place like this place that is no longer here. Um, that has been around since 1983 and people really were excited about that. And so it was through the Kickstarter campaign and people just hearing that this place was opening that the word got out. We have, um, in the neighborhood, uh, a website called Harlem Bespoke. And a lot of people read it um, for news about new things that are happening in the neighborhood, different <laughs> brownstones that are selling for multi-million dollars, you know, just different stuff. And But it, it, the reader base is a very dedicated one. And Ulysses, who's the person, um, I think, who runs the, the site, happened to post, I think, our Kickstarter and, and periodically will post like updates about the shop um, throughout the course of the year and has done that for the last couple of years. And so it was sort of these local... Um, moments of coverage and this Kickstarter campaign that got people excited. And then that's what resulted in this line that we could have never anticipated. We were so not ready for four hours of people just waiting for (laughs) ice cream on that July. Wow. Wait, did you say how much you raised via the Kickstarter? So we raised $21,000. Okay. And, um, oh, I think our goal was actually, no, it was 12,000 or 12,500. But I think in our video... I I said some different number. Anyway, we raised more than we thought we were going to raise. Like, and I was like ready. I had my email cues, like all in my drafts to like start blasting people to me like, hey, we're doing this thing. We're opening an ice cream shop. Please support us. And I didn't even have to do that. Okay. Like 
I literally posted on my little small like personal account, hey, we're doing a crazy thing. We're opening an ice cream shop and we're doing a Kickstarter. <laughs> and then that is it. Like people were reposting. People were just excited for us to take this risk. And mm-hmm. they, we ha- they had an immediate call to action, which was go to this Kickstarter campaign and support it. And by that time, obviously, we knew this was opening. So it wasn't like a complete risk for them to invest, you know, the $10 or $20, in some cases, $500, you know into this idea because we had the financing and it really was to kind of bridge us with any sort of last minute purchases and, you know, support any sort of operating costs. And people were basically, we were like pre-selling ice cream. So it was a, it was a sure bet in terms of their investment. Um, but it, it helped get people so excited about our opening. Again, we could not have gauged how excited people would be because Nick made ice cream well in advance, had many backups of things. And by the end of the night, there was no ice cream left. And we, like, it takes, it takes time to make ice cream. It needs to freeze. You have to, we, you have to be hot before it's cold. You got to chill it. Then you got to freeze it. Like there are steps. And so we were not ready to be all out of ice cream on that Saturday. And we had to open at 5 PM on Sunday so that he could make ice cream all through the night on that Saturday, very early morning. Like, I mean, we closed at 11. He was making ice cream until like three or four in the morning. That is amazing. And then we came back and we're like, okay, shop is closed until five. So we can wait for this ice cream to freeze. And then, you know, we were just back at it again. I mean, the first few months were just so intense. Did the foot traffic rate keep up? Like, did you find that it dwindled down after the first week and then you had to really get creative to continue to get people in? You know, so definitely we didn't have like a four hour line, right? Um, You know, the weeks following, but there was definitely a steady, steady foot traffic. You know, it was also, we were very eager to be open during the summer. We didn't want to open in October because we were not sure. Of course. (laughs) So we had all of August um, where people are looking for, you know, something. Um, And ice cream is kind of this impulsive buy where you see somebody walking around with an ice cream cone. You're like, oh, where'd you get that? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and then it sends the next person. So um, so no, I mean, it was a pretty steady, it was pretty steady traffic, like throughout August, it, what hit us and the time where we had to come out of our pocket to pay for, um, the storefront rent was in that December. And how do you handle the, the colder months? What are, what are the promotions or what, how do you approach it so that you get people to continue eating and buying ice cream? Yeah. So we, um, we do birthday buyouts. Um, so this is something that, you know, my experience working in museums where museums are always thinking creatively about how to generate revenue because outside of maybe ticket costs or ticket prices, you know, they're nonprofits. And so, um, we rent out our, um, ice cream shop for birthdays. Um, we have a 10 o'clock slot and a 12 o'clock slot and New York is the kind of place where many people will go and have their child's birthday, um, at another venue that is not their home because the space is so tight. You know, you're like, I live in a one bedroom or two bedroom. And I, you know, I don't have space for my kid and all of their friends. So people like gymnastic businesses and, you know, chocolate businesses and ice cream, you know, everybody rents out their, not everybody, but many people will rent out their location and do birthday party packages to support the bottom line. And so because we're not open at 10 AM and we, and we are open at 12, but that's why the rental price is a little bit more of a premium price to offset the business that we are basically forfeiting. We do these birthday packages throughout the year and kids come and have their birthday parties at the shop all the time. We actually just had an adult birthday the other day. It was lovely. So we encourage the adults too, who want to have an ice cream party. Okay. (laughs) So packages, you know, usually five, $600, you know, for, um, a 90 minute experience. And that's going to be, that's a different spend rate than 
the $9 or the $10 or the $13 and somebody's spending to come and like get ice cream for themselves and some friends. Right. Mm -hmm. So these sort of things, um, help support the seasonality of the business. We also do a ton of catering, um, which when we first started, we, we were just trying to catch our breath. So like we were not in a capacity to do catering or baby showers and weddings and just other special events, anniversaries and that sort of thing and corporate catering, et cetera. Um, but now I'd probably say like maybe six to seven months in, we started getting inquiries. And now we, that is like a legit line in our revenue, um, where we do offsite catering and we have this like cute tricycle. It has like our logo on it. It's like you know, outfitted with the brand colors. Um, and we will come and cater at people's offices if they want to do like an ice cream social for employees or people's baby showers. We have been in many a backyard and in, and surprisingly people do have them in New York. Um, they're not as big as the suburban backyards, but they are backyards. And, um, um, we have even, you know, catered where the ice cream tricycles like right in front of a brownstone, you know, and somebody lives on one of the floors. And so they offer their guests like an ice cream as they're coming in. So catering and, um, um, these sort of um, venue buyouts are the way that we offset the seasonality of our business. What are some creative ways that you market your ice cream shop that has really allowed you to continue to be relevant and top of mind as a Harlem-based business? So every spring, and we launched this in 2019, we partner with a tastemaker, um, a cultural tastemaker who's impacting culture, Black culture specifically, in our neighborhood and beyond. So they are known nationally and internationally. Um, and they work with Nick to create an ice cream of their own design. Um, we sell that ice cream flavor for only a week and proceeds um, from the ice cream go to a nonprofit of their choosing. So last year we launched this series and we call it the Harlem Flavor of the Week. Um, and we worked with um, Marcus Samuelson, um, who owns Red Rooster and many other restaurants um, across the world. Um, and then Thelma Golden, who is the director of Studio Museum in Harlem. Uh, Sheila Bridges, who is an interior designer, a Black interior designer that was like one of the first on TV. Um, uh, JJ Johnson, who used to be the chef at Cecil, but now has a fast casual Sam. Uh, I don't know Sam's last name, actually. Sam, I'm sorry. Um, but, um, they co-own, um, a place called Field Trip, um, which is a grain bowl fast casual down the street from us. Tuma Bassa, who is the head of urban music at YouTube, but probably most notably, uh, known for creating the rap caviar list on Spotify and Melba Wilson, who has Melba's, um, which is an American comfort restaurant. Um, and she is like one of the descendants of Sylvia, who is like known, the known soul food um, sort of uh, proprietress, who obviously is no longer with us. But um, so we had, these were our initial six collaborators um, and they all made an ice cream that they designed with Nick. And then it sold at the shop it was an idea that Nick and I just kind of thought of. We had like a big chalkboard at our house and we were just kind of writing names down like who would be cool to work with. And we just kind of sent cold emails out. I mean, in some cases, in a lot of cases, we actually know those people. So it wasn't like a, a hard ask, um, uh, but it was an experiment. And we were not sure if it was going to land properly or people were going to care. You know? <laughs> but right, we right. opened with JJ's flavor and like people were so excited about it. And it, I was like, wow, it's working. Like, like people are really into this. Huh? Interesting. And then it just continued and we would announce the next person every, at the beginning of each week. And people were coming in to try these flavors. And what it allowed for was for us to market to these other sort of 
industry. So Sheila was really excited about her. Everybody was excited about their own flavor because also we learned through our Kickstarter that people are really jazzed about either naming a flavor, having their um, face on the wall in our in our shop, which we have like these portraits of neighbors and designing their own ice cream. No idea. But so what we so we applied that to this and um, people were all really excited about their flavor and they were posting about it. We asked them to post at least twice on their Instagram accounts. Okay. And so that is so creative. So, so people yeah. Were posting and like Design Sponge was like posting Sheila's flavor. Meanwhile, like uh, people in the like entertainment music industry were like, "Oh, Tuma's like opening an ice cream shop." He's like, "I'm not opening an ice cream shop. I just I had this bomb ice cream flavor you to go." <laughs> and so, um, what we learned is like the more that people were posting about their individual flavors. A, like the sales for those flavors went up, which also meant that we could con- we could donate more to the, the nonprofit of their choosing. And like a wonderful success story, I think, from the series that um, allowed us to work on mission as a business and uh, contributing to the assets of our neighborhood was with Tuma's Flavor, where he named um, Harlem School of the Arts as his sort of nonprofit beneficiary from the proceeds of his sales. And that's an organization that has served many, many people, many, many years, and that supports children, you know, across the arts. And so I'm um, being that he comes from the music um, industry, like he's like, oh, I want to, I want to, this is the organization that I would like for you all to donate the, you know, it was like 10% of um, sales. And so we randomly reached out and we're like, Hey, Tuma wants us to donate this money. And they're like, Oh, that's so as a nonprofit. And again, because this is my background, I'm like, when you get a call from somebody saying, Hey, I just want to give you money that you weren't expecting. Like, that's awesome. Um, and so I'll I'll take it. (laughs) So, um, so they ended up, you know, developing a relationship with Tuma and with YouTube. And then they were able, like YouTube ended up buying a table at their gala, you know, which like that little small for us, meaningful, but for them, maybe still meaningful, but not as meaningful of a donation then resulted in a much larger, larger donation. Like was like, just felt so happy about that. You know, it's like, this is the role that we want to play as business owners in our community, because this is also our community, which I think there's a lot to say about the, our agency and, and what should be doing as a, as a, as brick and mortar business owners, you know? And what a powerful example of, you know, community economics and how supporting each other doesn't take away from another one's business. It it only helps to continue to make Harlem thrive, continue to make other Black-owned businesses thrive. So I really love that example. Now, before we get into the lightning round, I just am curious about, well, for one, um, at this stage, is the business profitable? Oh, yeah, the business is. Last year, um, we turned our first profit, which was great. Um, I actually, you know, I listened, I think, to your most recent episode where... The guest shared the book, is it on profit or profitable? She in profit first. Profit first, right. So actually after listening to that, I then started reading like the preview. I was like, okay, I need to get this on Audible or get it at the library and read it. But the chapters that I read were it was like pay yourself as a business first. Um, I felt like we're awesome because we do it as individuals, but as business owners, sometimes we don't, right? We've always had the cash flow to support all of our bills and needs, but because we don't take money out of the business, like, is it, is it, do you actually see that profit outside of just being able to pay for the things that you need to pay for? Does that make, are you following? Right. So um, anyway, that aside, our plan for scaling is that we are opening a second location in Hamilton Heights, which is closer to our namesake Sugar Hill. 
it's like the adjacent neighborhood. And then depending on who you talk to, people are like, that is still Sugar Hill. Um, it'll be on Broadway um, between 149th and 150th. And in that location, we will have a commissary space. So we'll be able to basically produce a lot of more ice cream than we are currently able to produce, which will allow us to um, build wholesale accounts. Um, you know, obviously like grocers have requested or at, uh, expressed interest in carrying our products. Um, universities and the sort of other large entities who want to have our products available to their constituents have expressed interest. We cannot fulfill those requests at this juncture because we don't have the uh, production capacity to do it. And because we make all of our ice cream, it's not like something we can send to like a co-packer, right? Um, and so um, having this other location with this access to space will allow us to build out and sort of scale the business to meet those needs. Um, we will obviously then increase our salaries and then, yeah, and continue to grow what it is that we've started. You know, after speaking with you, I realized you're opening my eyes to the fact that your business is custom handmade ice cream. You know, a lot of times when I go into an ice cream shop, I take for granted that these are hand prepared. But here you are, you have to also think through how much of each to prepare so that you don't have a lot of waste, so that you have enough inventory when people come in. Can you talk a little bit about that operations and planning process? Yeah, I mean, and we, I think we have been, uh, at least in the very early days, like, learning a little bit of that as we go. Because Nick makes flavors that you don't necessarily find in every ice cream shop, right? Our best-selling flavors are our blueberry cheesecake ice cream, which tastes basically like a frozen piece of blueberry cheesecake. It is divine. And if you like cheesecake, like, you have come to the right place. Um, people come in and say, like, what do you all put in that? Like, I'm still thinking about it and I need more, right? So blueberry cheesecake, the salted caramel, we make the caramel that is, you know, it goes into that ice cream and it's folded in with brownie bites and butterscotch pieces. So, but we didn't know when we first opened with those flavors among eight other flavors that they would perform well. We're like, well, we're just gonna put some things out there and see how they do, how they perform. And now that we've been almost three years at it, we do know what our public enjoys. Um, there are, right now in the case, we have a flavor called The Roots, uh, and it's uh, actually a roasted beets and parsnips flavor. Um, so it's a little vegetal, but also sweet. And people, it's not my personal jam, but many people enjoy it. Um, and that is kind of like a risky, you know, flavor, I guess, because who eats and likes vegetal ice cream? But you could, people have come to expect that you're not going to get like just basic flavors at our shop, but we also do have the flavors that are more conventional and that people do expect. Like our vanilla ice cream, which I believe is kind of like the chicken of restaurants. Um, like if you go to a restaurant and they don't have good chicken, then likely nothing else there is great. If you don't know how to make chicken, then like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Just wrap up the close up the shop. So our vanilla ice cream is like that, where it's it's only made with five ingredients, and it tastes. Many people have said like tastes like my grandmother's vanilla, you know, that she like hand cranked. Um, and that is there. We also have um, a dark chocolate sorbet for our non dairy eaters. And that is delicious and that I eat year round. If you like chocolate, like it is so rich. So that said, you know, how do we manage um, inventory and making sure we don't run out? Well, honestly, like sometimes we just do run out, you know, because we don't have a ton of space to store like backup. So last night we ran out. And so what did Nick have to do? He had to, after, you know, we put our kids to bed and well, actually I put them to bed. We, ha we all had dinner together, but then he left like right after he ate to go and make ice cream. 
and that is our life, you know, um, so that we would have the blueberry cheesecake for today. Mm. That is how we do it, you know. Um, and again, because we we have limited storage space and we have limited production capacity, we can't like churn out 80 gallons of the blueberry cheesecake and just pull from the stores, you know, pull from the walk in freezer because we just don't have the storage space for it. We will. And that will be great when we do. But right now, that is how we've managed it. It's a, it's very touch and go. And we are have our hands very much on the pulse of our business because we don't live that far. We work there like in the shop. We're not like, you know, invisible people that people are like, who are the owners? Like people very much know who we are um, because we're always there. Again, it's in our neighborhood. So the way that we manage sometimes when we run out is that we just have to, when I say we, I mean, God bless Nick. Like he has to make it at, at, <laughs> at night, 12 o'clock at night, you know, um, make sure yes but that's real yeah you know i just feel like we'll have we just have so much more respect for the work ethic and when you patronize a business and you know how hard they work it just makes you want to send people there more go there more so um you know thank you for sharing that and now before we jump into the lightning round share a little bit more about what's next for you and um sugar hill creamery yeah. So again, we are, we're opening the second location. Um, it should be open in the next couple of months. Um, it has been a very harrowing process of opening two locations. And I know that like the next chapter of my life is going to be intense because <laughs> this location is about a 15 minute drive from our current. Um, and so just balancing and juggling like set, I said seven children. That's how I feel. I only have three. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> balancing you know, the whereabouts uh, uh, and activities and social calendars and academic calendars. Do you put them to work in, in the shop? Listen, we do. Okay. Um, we don't give an allowance. We only pay them and really the eldest for work that she does at the shop. Like, I don't believe in paying you for doing stuff around the house that you're supposed to learn how to do anyway. <laughs> but I will pay you for doing things in this business that, you know, you've been subject to. Um, so wiping down the counters, wiping down the windows, mopping, that sort of stuff she does get um pay for she does not really an allowance um so anyway we're opening this location we will have 12 flavors um we're very excited about that and then as far as my own um personal sort of interests i guess um i i adjunct teach at city college like once a week so i'm working with undergraduates around art education but being in that space of teaching i have been very interested in teaching, I guess, people like me. So moms who are in the space of transition or who want to be in the space of transition, who have the itch that I had when I had our first child of like, I want to spend more time with you and I don't want to be as cranky, you know, like I want to actually enjoy this time together, you know? Um, and I don't know exactly what that looks like or how that's financially possible in this very expensive city, but I want to figure it out. And it took me obviously some years and a couple more children to figure it out, but I want to be in a space where I'm working with moms to help them think through and kind of, I guess, coach them through the transition. A lot of it is based in personal finance as well. Um, and allowing them to identify, um, and define what enough looks like and what contentment looks like and what their must haves and nice to haves are, um, and help them sort of connect some dots about, you know, what their own assets are as like a person, not like your property and stock assets, but like, what are your sort of soft skill assets and what are your interests and making those connections so that they can ex fully explore and then execute on taking the risk or take, making the jump or making the transition to creating a work life that is more fitting of living and not just working to earn. Got it. 
So now it's time to transition into the lightning round. You know the deal. You just answer the very first thing that comes to mind. Time is of the essence. (laughs) Number one, what is a resource that has helped you in your business that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience? Okay. Not to like give like a free advertising thing, but honestly, we use Gusto as a payroll provider and we just had a labor audit. Let me tell you, that thing was stressful because, you know, just getting audited is stressful, but because we use this as a payroll, it helped streamline everything so much uh, that when they sent me the laundry list of documents that I needed to produce, it was very easy. Listen, we love Gusto around here. And I'm going to tell them you said that they support Side Hustle Pro so much. Shout out to Gusto. I'm so glad you're loving it. It was, it was literally a godsend. Like, I was like, you know what? Coffee, Jesus, and Gusto got me through that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Love it. Okay. Number two, what has been the best business book that you've directly applied to your business? So I think, it, again, it's not like a business book for like business sake, but the personal finance part. So Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robin is like a must read for, I think, everybody. Um, it is a book that allows you to really, A, uh, define how much it costs you to go to work. What is your actual hourly wage? Yes, you make $200,000 cool. Like what are the clothes you have to buy? What is the commute you have to do? What is the food that you have to buy? What is the decompression time that you have to take to actually work that job? And then she makes you do an equation and then you then calculate what your actually hourly wage is. And you're like, oh snap, I can pay $2 an hour based on all of these (laughs) things that I have to do in order to show up to go to work. Right. And so then let's say you don't decide to do those things or you don't um, decide to make that amount of money from an employer, then she allow- she just has different exercises to allow you to see what actually do you need in order to live and have all of your needs met, right? Mm, and I love that. Yeah. I, ex- I encourage everybody to go through that. And then, um, you know, to, de- to then save as much money as possible. Like I'm not a spender. Um, I don't enjoy consumerism. It makes clutter in your New York size apartment. And I don't have like, I, I, we do have a pretty spacious apartment I feel grateful for, but at the same time, like it is, li- it's finite. So buying things just stress me out. Number three, what is a non-negotiable part of your daily routine? having dinner with my family. So that's something that I was not able to do prior to this business because Nick worked at night. I worked in the day. I was picking up from daycare. I was not cooking. Like a seamless bill was on 10, you know? Um, And maybe I would make something quick for, you know, my eldest daughter at the time. um, And then like eat some cereal, you know, just like not taking care of myself in that way. Um, and so mm-hmm. having dinner together not only has allowed us to have some centered family time, um, we're all pausing from the day. We're not at the shop. We're not, we don't, I mean, with the exception of yesterday and there are moments where it's like, okay, I got to cut dinner short, but we ate together. We at least had 25 minutes together, you know, mm-hmm. um, which that doesn't happen all the time. Usually Nick will go down like at nine, you know, like after the children are asleep or something. Um, the children go to sleep a little earlier than nine, but sometimes with the third child, it's tricky. Anyway, I'll make this short. The point is dinner time is the non-negotiable. I must have it. It is the time for us to be together. It is time for us to like check out from the rest of the world. It is also the thing that prompts me to cook. Um, and cooking has also saved my life from like, like a, from a health perspective as well as a financial perspective. And it is just required me to be more conscientious of like how I consume 
in the world. Cause the thing that I was spending a lot of money on was food and like going out and all of that. And, mm-hmm. and, and while that is very fun, it's not the most healthy thing to do all the time. Right. And yeah, um, and neither for very, your, for your body or your pockets. <laughs> exactly. So dinner time has allowed me to kind of recalibrate a lot. Okay. And then number four, what's a personal habit that helped you significantly when you were side hustling? Mm, well, honestly, I mean, we went from working full time to working full time, you know, <laughs> so it's a little I guess it was a little different. Um, uh, uh, I would say the saving part saving. I'm really big on the personal finance. Like mm. the thing was knowing the numbers, you know, not spending every dime that I was making and not treating myself all the time because, you know, we like to treat ourselves. Yes. I suffer from that. I'm working on that. <laughs> you know, like, I deserve this. I work hard, you know? So, um, it's that, you know, it's like, okay, let's find some like free self-care like, mm-hmm. like, or, or let's try not to be in a place where we're fully, fully overextended that yeah. we have to feel like we treat our, we're needing to treat ourselves because, you know, that's how we end up treating ourselves, And then we don't set up our future mm-hmm. in the same way. So, right. so, and finally, number five, um, what is your parting advice for fellow Black women entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss, but are worried about drawing down less income, as you say, mm-hmm. and, you know, losing that steady paycheck? I think it's about doing that deep dive, you know, really thinking about, OK, but what do you actually need? Right. Right. What is the quality of life that you want to live and really define that being very clear, being very specific about that quality of life. For me, it was being able to enjoy the people that I brought into this world that didn't ask to be here and also being able to have more quality time with my husband and obviously to be able to pay for my basic needs, like my housing, my mortgage, like all these things. Right. And so that's, that was what I needed. Right. I don't need to drive a really nice car. In fact, I drive a minivan from 2006. Like, you know, like I just, I don't need, but some people need that, right? And then when you figure out what it is that you need, think about why you need it, right? Do you really need that nice, whatever it is, because it makes you feel good? Why does it make you feel good? Like, it's really about doing some very deep introspective work that maybe everybody's not ready ready to do because they're not really ready to hear the answers um, of like, oh, I might be, replacing a void, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's doing that. And then once you figure out what your actual needs are, then creating an action plan, like some smart goals, all right, measurable, time-based, actionable, whatever, you know, and creating like your timeline for when you're going to maybe exit your life in the, in the present moment to transition to this new life yes. and making sure that you have all of your expenses met yes. as a result. And if you don't have them met, where can you go seek help for that to be met? Like never should, if you, especially if you have kids, never should there be a moment where they're hungry. Never should there be a moment where, um, they, their housing is in the balance because you decided to do this, mm-hmm. right? Like, that happens to people. And sometimes, you know, it happens uh, because of things out of their control. But never should you go into this transition where those things have not been considered. I, I feel like unless you are 
in a very potentially like threatening space, like be thoughtful about your transition and make sure that your needs are met, or at least you have a place where they can be met. Somebody can help you, an entity, the government, I don't know, like whatever, the marketplace, you know, with insurance, whatever it is, make sure that all of your T's are crossed and I's are dotted before you transition. And that you have like a nest egg and a foundation to support the things that other people cannot Mm. help support. Thank you for that solid piece of advice. Now, Petrushka, I know people are going to be reaching out for you to you because not only are you a side hustle pro, you're a business owner, you transition, but I just really think that your confidence in doing business and business sense are really stand out to me. And, and so expect, expect those, those emails and DMs. Um, so where can people connect with you and Sugar Hill Creamery after this episode? So um, we are most active on our Instagram account, the, the shop is. So we're Sugar Hill Ice Cream on Instagram and Facebook, um, Sugar Hill Cream on Twitter. And then um, on Instagram, you can find me at Homesteading in Harlem. I just started this account um, to really kind of document this journey, you know, because it has been a journey. It has been a process of doing some very deep sort of looking inside of myself about the person I want to be and the mother I want to be, the partner I want to be, the business owner I want to be, and then how to do it in a city that doesn't always care that I want to be a particular way, right? So uh, homesteading in Harlem on Instagram. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much again. And there you have it. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other side hustlers just like you to find the show. And if you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Side Hustle Pro. Plus, sign up for my six bullet Saturday newsletter at sidehustlepro.co slash newsletter. When you sign up, you'll receive weekly nuggets from me, including what I'm up to, personal lessons, and my business tip of the week week. Again, that's sidehustlepro.co slash newsletter to sign up. Talk to you soon.